Welcome and thank you for joining us at Christian International Ministries. Our vision is to help you hear God's voice to change your world. For more information about this and other resources, please visit www.christianinternational.com. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be home. Um, and it is especially wonderful since the first huge snowstorm of the year was hitting New York the day that I was flying out. I was very grateful to come back to this beautiful sunshine and relative warmth. Um, so very, very happy about that. Um, I hope everyone had a lovely Thanksgiving. I love this time of year. Um, did you all get your fill of pumpkin spice things? I mean, we've still got another month or so of pumpkin spice. Uh, my grandmother made a delicious pumpkin spice cake that we devoured. Um, but I love this time of year. I love the holidays. I love Thanksgiving. And it's a time, I think, that we, um, we have a lot of fun, but it also tends to um, make us think about what's most important, right? We think about what we're thankful for. We think about what's important in our lives. And, you know, for better or worse, the holidays have this um, ability to just bring all of our relationships into sharp relief. Um, a lot of times that can be good, but, but not always, <laughs> um, as we've seen from a lot of great uh, holiday movies about families and dinner tables and lots of fun things that I'm sure you have from your own life that we could tell stories all day. Not for my family, of course. Um, never, of course. But, you know, it's, it's an interesting time of year. We're, we're very grateful for things, and it may be also a time that we're longing for those things that aren't in our lives or people who are no longer in our lives. And it's a time when we start to evaluate um, where, where we need to put our energy, where we need to put our focus, what, what we want to see at the end of our lives that's most important and most valuable. And so I kind of want to speak into this social connection, our friendships, our relationships. Um, a, a few, maybe a few years ago now, I'm not sure, but a little while ago, I came across this quote by C.S. Lewis. We all know C.S. Lewis, right? Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. He was a great um, Christian writer of the 20th century. But he said this. He said, friendship is unnecessary. Like philosophy, like art, it has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things that give value to survival. So I liked this, and I posted it, and of course I, I posted it to Facebook, and, and at first some people didn't love it because he purposefully shocks you a little bit by making you think he doesn't care about friendship or thinks it's worthless. And of course he's saying the exact opposite, right? He's saying you can't, look, you can't eat or breathe friendship or relationships. It's not going to put food on the table. It's not going to put a roof over your head. It's not going to help you stay alive. But it is one of those things that makes getting out of bed in the morning worthwhile. It's one of those reasons to live. And then it wasn't too long after I came across this quote and this interesting discussion that we had um, that I found something that said this, this article that kind of basically contradicted some of C.S. Lewis and said that there actually is survival value to be had in friendship. And I don't think it's any secret that life is better with friends. Can we agree to that? I, I think it's just kind of better. Um, but it looks like some of these studies that are, are being done are saying that it can actually have a huge effect on, on your health and on your quality of life. So this article cited that researchers at Brigham Young 
um, have done the study recently that found those who have strong relationships with their friends are 50% less likely to die early. Having low levels of social interaction was equivalent to being an alcoholic. It was more harmful than not exercising and twice as harmful as obesity. A lack of social relationships was equivalent to smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. They said that social, isol social isolation, that is really hard to say just in case you don't know, that, just try it on your own sometime, um, is also a, a huge risk factor for the onset of major depression, which has more than doubled in prevalence over the past decade. And there's growing evidence that isolation increases vulnerability to various forms of addiction. Now, I, I don't think that's terribly surprising, but I was shocked by how much this affects our physical well-being. Um, I, I would have guessed that it had something to do with our emotional well-being, but our, our literal physical bodies are affected by whether or not we have strong friendships in our lives. So I was, I was kind of mulling over this at the same time that I came um, across another story in the LA Times that talked about how, how friendship has become this kind of major theme in television. That it's become kind of what the selling point in TV over the last decade or so. Um, because TV producers have figured out that we crave this kind of, of intimacy, this kind of closeness. Um, and that it's become this basic theme. So I want to read a couple of quotes to you from this article that says that television has become a kind of friendship machine dispensing groups of people in constant and intimate contact with one another, sitting around in living rooms, restaurants, and coffee shops, sharing everything all of the time. It's very realistic, isn't it? Um, here are a few things you are virtually certain to see again and again and again. Lots of folks spending the better part of their day surrounded by their friends and family in happy conviviality. Folks wandering into the unlocked apartments and homes of friends and family and neighbors at any time of day as if this were the most natural thing in the world. And let me just tell you that living in New York City, first of all, the show Friends, they would never, ever have afforded an apartment that large and that nice. And if they did, they would not leave the doors unlocked. Okay? And what were they, like an out-of-work actor, a waitress? There's no way they afforded that apartment. That is complete fiction. Just, let me just put that out there. All right. What are the other things here? Um, so, as if it's the most natural thing in the world, friends and family sitting down and having lots of tearful heart-to-hearts. Do we remember Full House? Anybody? Anybody in my age group? Every single episode, there was some point when you would hear the music play, and you knew, here comes the tearful heart-to-heart, -heart. here's the message of whatever the story is happening. All right, that's what that one makes me think of. Little League games, school assemblies, and dance recitals, all attended by, you guessed it, scads and scads of friends and family. Sadly, the statistics show that that kind of friendship in America is becoming more and more rare. And they say that that, that has become a theme because they realize look, we're craving this kind of intimacy, this kind of friendship, this kind of relationship and social connection, but we can't find it, so at least we'll watch other people have it on TV. Um, a, recent, a recent cover of Psychology Today said that Americans are now perilously isolated. And uh, I, I like the way that my grandfather talks about isolation because he's a, he's a good old Oklahoma boy, and he um, has a very literal 
way of, of expressing himself, and he says it this way. He says, it's the banana that gets separated from the bunch that gets peeled and eaten. There you go. It's graphic. And I mean, if you ever watch National Geographic, it is always the straggler in the back that's by itself that the lion gets, okay? So nearly a decade ago, there was a Harvard professor named Robert Putnam, and he wrote a book called Bowling Alone about this phenomenon that's happening. And he said, for the first two-thirds of the 20th century, a powerful tide bore Americans together in ever-deeper engagement in the life of their communities. But a few decades ago, silently, without warning, that tide reversed, and we were overtaken by a treacherous current. And it was a current that pulled Americans apart. So a recent study out of Duke University kind of reiterates this, and this was shocking to me. This study cites that a staggering 25% of Americans have no close social relations at all, no meaningful social support, and not a single person they can confide in. Not one. And that this has increased threefold over the last two decades. It also said a full 50% of Americans have no close relationships outside of their immediate families. I think our last census was, what, 300 million people or so? So 25%, 75 million people in our country don't have a single person they could talk to. Not one. So this is especially strange also because we claim to be about 75% Christian. And so these numbers don't really add up, right? Jesus said they will know we are Christians by our love. So what's, what's happening to us? What's pulling us apart? What's deteriorating our relationships? We know that it's important, we crave it, we value it, and yet it's going away. So why? What are some things that could be keeping us from strengthening or developing strong relationships? And of course, I'm sure there are a host of reasons. I'm just going to talk about a few of them this morning. Um, And so the first one I want to talk about, and the first one that a lot of these studies cite, is just the pace of modern life. Time constraints. We're busy, right? We're always busy. We're always running to and from, and we're always late for an appointment, and we're always filling our schedules, filling our schedules. Um, You know, I moved to New York about a year and a half ago, and I moved there with maybe a handful of acquaintances in the city. Uh, I didn't really know anybody. I moved in with roommates that I didn't know, uh, which was terrifying, but worked out. You know, I didn't know people, and I knew that relationships were really important to me, and if, that I, if I was going to thrive, if this was going to work, that as much energy as I put into finding the right job and the right apartment, I had to put into finding friends. I had to put into finding people that I could connect to. And, you know, it required, it required a lot of effort on my part and a lot of being brave and a lot of going to connect groups where I didn't know anybody and visiting different churches and 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 catching up with coworkers that I, I didn't know that well, and making an effort and making it a priority. You would think that in, in our modern life, as this, these studies cite, you would think that we have all this technology that helps us stay connected all the time. We're always on 24 hours a day, and that we would feel more connected, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, 
The studies cite a few things like longer work hours, the internet. You can tell it's a few years old because it says the ubiquitous iPod. Really, nobody uses that anymore, so iPhone, I guess. Um, time spent sitting in traffic. You know, things that are just taking up more and more of our time. It's said that even Americans a few generations ago used to benefit from the richness of community life that has all but disappeared. Deep friendships are replaced by screens, gadgets, video games, and exhausted couch potato stupor. None of us have ever been guilty of that at all. Sometimes you just need a Netflix weekend, what can I say? Um, but I don't think it's just modern technology. We do have more opportunities to be distracted, to entertain ourselves, I would say. Um, but I saw one of those cute little e-cards the other day that had a picture of like a packed train from, I don't know, like the 1950s or something. And every single person on the train had a newspaper up in front of their faces. And they were like, oh, these kids today with their phones, they never talk to each other. Um, so it's clearly not just technology, right? <laughs> it's about priorities. It's about intentions. It's about making an effort. Um, you know, my, my mom was saying that when she was a kid, her, her mom would always tease about how she had like a, she must have been born with a phone cord growing out of her her ear, and instead of an umbilical cord, she had a phone cord, because she was constantly on the phone with her friends and family. So technology is neither bad nor good. It's about how you use it, right? But at the same time, we have to be aware of how it's affecting our lives and choose to make people priorities. Um, and I think that part of, part of the issue here is that we tend to view hanging out with people as unproductive, right? Like, just going to like see a movie or grab a coffee with a friend, it doesn't seem like you're really getting something done. And we're, we're really about getting things done in this generation, in this, this day and age. We like to see that our time was, was productive, that it has value. But from what all these studies are saying, and from clearly the way that God created us, this is valuable time. This is a valuable activity that is of critical importance, not only to our emotional well-being, but to our physical health. The studies say that this activity, building friendships, hanging out with friends, is more important to our physical and mental well-being than exercising, than taking certain medications like that for high blood pressure, than fresh air, and then avoiding alcohol if you're an alcoholic. So it's pretty important, and it's also a pretty high priority with God. We see uh, in John 15:13, he says, "This is my commandment." Anytime, just a clue, you see something in the scripture that starts with, this is my commandment, it's probably going to be followed by something pretty important. And it says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then it says, greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. So how do we get to the point of, being in such a close relationship with somebody that we're willing to sacrifice, that we're willing to lay down our lives, that we're willing to be there for them through hard times, if it's like really inconvenient to find time for a cup of coffee. We have to choose to begin to make it a priority. Proverbs 27.9, I just love how this is worded. It says, oil and perfume rejoice the heart, so does the sweetness of a friend's counsel that comes from the heart. And then in Ecclesiastes, the just more literal one, two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. 
But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. So relationships and social connection have to become a priority. We have to become more intentional about reaching out, about being kind, about taking a moment to pause from all of our busyness, to listen instead of checking our phones while somebody's talking to us. Have you ever had this happen? You're like, you're in the middle of a conversation, then you're like, you can't hear me anymore. You're in another world, right? Or if you've ever been in like a grocery store or something, and you just hear somebody talking, you're like, are you talking to me? And you turn and see that they're on Bluetooth, you know? You're like, oh, that person's crazy. Oh, no, okay, it's fine. (laughs) Right? So we just have to be more intentional about how our, our modern life is affecting us, how technology affects us. We have to be able to see that relationships are still of great value in the middle of that. Okay, the next thing that I, that I think, the next factor, if you want to say, that's maybe contributing to our, our difficulty in, in having close relationships would be offense and disagreement, right? So what's the first rule of friendship? If you want to have friends, show yourself friendly, right? So some of this is really basic stuff that we learned in kindergarten, but we never really got quite right, right? It's tough. It's tough when somebody hurts our feelings. It's t- it was tough then, and it's tough now. And then maybe a different kind of thing. Maybe they didn't take your toy. But when they say harsh words, th- those things are tough to get over, it's tough to, to, to move past it. And of course, I, I wouldn't recommend getting into really toxic and unhealthy relationships or staying in them. But I would also say that we've become people who are like really, we have short attention spans. Things are really disposable in our culture. And it's really easy to go like, this is kind of hard. Like at the first sign of a conflict and at the first sign of something going wrong or that person having a hard time to just go like, ugh, this is taking too much effort. It's not convenient anymore. Let's move on to somebody else that will be easier. Right? And it's harder, it's harder to get in there and work through the hard issues. But every relationship of value is going to have those difficult times. As evidenced by like, every romantic comedy you have ever seen. Okay? I like rom-coms. I'm a girl. But most of the plot lines go something along the lines of, like, boy meets girl, they fall in love, huge, tragic, insurmountable something that is going to threaten their love. They won't ever be able to get back together. And then somehow, amazingly, plot twist, they're able to get back together and live happily ever after. Right? Pretty much, it's pretty much all of them. But that formula works because sometimes it's the, it's the relationships that take the most work or the most effort or that you have to work through something deep or more complicated that end up being the more valuable relationships, right? Scripture says it this way. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are lavish and deceitful. So sometimes a friend might say something that sort of hurts, but that you needed to hear. And those are the people that you need to trust. I think one of the biggest threats is bitterness. It's just getting offended, holding on to it, keeping it inside, bottled up, making it worse, then reliving every single thing they ever did wrong um, until you've built a case in your mind for why you just, this is just not going to work anymore. 
And uh, I heard somebody say this. I don't actually know. It sounds like a southern phrase to me, but I don't know where it came from. Um, <laughs> it says, bitterness is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Which always makes me think of that scene from The Princess Bride. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> right? Okay, if you haven't seen it, you should go watch it. Um, so bitterness is a huge threat, right? We have to be able to, to utilize forgiveness. It's a core Christian principle, right? It's one of those basics that we are supposed to do. But it's also essential in a healthy relationship and a healthy friendship. And forgiveness doesn't equal trust, okay? Trust is earned, but forgiveness is something that is required of us that we have to be able to figure out how to do. Um, it's an essential. I would say the other thing about offense and disagreement is just give your friends the benefit of the doubt. Give people in your life the benefit of the doubt. If you were the one that, that if the, the roles are reversed, if they were upset with something that you said, you would want them to go, oh, maybe they didn't mean it that way. You know? It's, it's simple. I know it's simple. But listen to it because it's really hard. It's hard to do because you like, I mean, once you're offended, once you're hurt, it's easy to want to push back or to withdraw your affections and shut down. It's hard to go, you know what? I know who they are. I know what their character is like. I don't think they meant this, and I'm going to choose to believe the best about them because you would want them to, shoot, to believe the best about you. Okay, moving on. That one was sticky. Let's, let's get past it. All right, so the last one I want to talk about, which is not really any less sticky, but is shame. This is the, the last factor that I think really affects our ability to have deep and true intimate friendships, relationships, strong social connection. And I came across this incredible TED Talk by Dr. Brene Brown. Have you heard of her at all, Dr. Brene Brown? She's, after this TED Talk, like, gotten really famous. Um, and it, I mean, I watched it. I made my mom sit down and watch it with me. I like, cried through parts of it. Um, it was really, really amazing. And so I just kind of want to sum up the, the main points that she made about this. But um, Brene Brown is a, a doctor, PhD of social work. And she studied shame and connection for six years. Thousands of stories, hundreds of long interviews with all kinds of different people. And this is, this is what she says. She says, connection is why we're here. It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. It's what it's all about. Neurobiologically, this is how we are wired. And as she began to do her study, she said six weeks into her research, she ran into this unnamed thing that she just couldn't describe that absolutely unraveled connection. And it was shame. And this is how she describes or defines shame. Shame is simply the fear of disconnection. Is there something about me that if people knew about it, they wouldn't want to connect with me? If they knew what I was really like, if you really had any idea where I've been, if you knew what I'd done, you wouldn't want anything to do with me. That's shame. And shame is universal, so we all have it. And the only people who don't experience shame have no capacity for human empathy or connection. So you don't want to be in that group, maybe. Um, 
Shame is different from guilt. Shame is about who we are. Guilt is about our behavior. So we can all agree that, like, guilt is maybe a useful tool, right? I I mean, if I do something that really hurts you, I should feel guilty about it and then apologize and try to make it better. Guilt can be useful, but shame is not. Shame is different from guilt in that guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am something bad. Guilt says, I made a mistake. Shame says, I'm stupid. It speaks to our identity. And so it's all about a perspective shift. Sometimes you have to tell yourself a different story. Sometimes you have to look at what's happening and go, okay, that's not really about me. It's about something that I did. It's about a behavior. It's about an outside. But, but you have to begin to look at things and say, I'm not going to let this affect who I am as a person. So shame is universal, but no one wants to talk about it. And the less that you talk about it, the more that you have it. So that's fun. Um, and what Dr. Brown found was underpinning this shame, this, this I am not blank enough feeling that we all have. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not wealthy enough. Was this excruciating vulnerability. And in order for connection to happen, we have to allow ourselves to be seen, to be really seen. And that vulnerability was just so painful for these people that were living with intense shame. So she says this, she says, there was only one variable that separated out the people who have a strong sense of love and belonging and the people who struggle for it. And that was that the people who have a strong sense of love and belonging believe they are worthy of love and belonging. That's it. They believe they're worthy. It didn't have to do with class or social status or race or age or it was that they believe they're worthy. That was the only differentiator. So the one thing that keeps us out of love and connection is a fear that we're not worthy of love and connection. And so as she began to study this cycle, she kind of, she separated out the people who had this strong sense of love and belonging and she called them the wholehearted. And she said, what is different about these people? What do they all have in common? And so these are a few things that they all had in common. The first one, she said, is they had courage. And this is different from bravery. She said, the original definition of courage, which came into the English language from the Latin word core, meaning heart, and that the original definition was telling the story of who you are with your whole heart. Courage. And these people very simply had the courage to be imperfect. That's hard. No one likes to be imperfect. No one likes to open themselves up and say, here's all of my mess. But that was one thing these people had, courage. The next thing they had was compassion. They had compassion to be kind to themselves first and then to others because as it turns out, We can't practice compassion for other people until we're kind to ourselves. These people understood that, and they knew how to be compassionate to themselves first and then to others. It's like when you get on an airplane, and they always tell you, okay, well, 
should like the worst thing in the world possibly happen, you have to put on your oxygen mask first and then help somebody else. Because if you don't have the oxygen flowing to yourself, then you're no good to help anybody else. You're going to pass out. You have to learn to be kind to yourself first, to be compassionate to yourself before you can give to others. The other thing that the wholehearted all had in common was authenticity. They had connection as a result of authenticity, and they were willing to let go of who they thought they should be to be who they really are, and that's absolutely necessary for a connection. The next thing they all had was vulnerability, and these all sound similar, but they're a little bit different. They fully embraced vulnerability. They believed that what made them vulnerable made them beautiful. They didn't talk about vulnerability being, unco- uh, being comfortable, nor did they talk about it being excruciating, as the, the other people in the more like, shame-based group did. They talked about it just being necessary. They talked about the willingness to say, I love you first, the willingness to do something where there are no guarantees to breathe through the doctor waiting to call about a mammogram, to be there with somebody through a hard time, the willingness to invest in a relationship that might not work out. They thought it was absolutely fundamental to connection that you'd be vulnerable. And so in the middle of this research, she realized that she had a real problem with vulnerability. And she went to to find a therapist. She said like a a therapist of therapists. They're really hard cases. Um, And she, she said this to her therapist. She said, I know that vulnerability is kind of the core of shame and fear and our struggle for worthiness. But it appears that it's also the birthplace of joy and creativity, of belonging of love, and I think I have a problem. (laughs) And she kind of went on to tell her her more personal story. But then she also said, we numb vulnerability. She said it this way, we are the most in-debt, obese, addicted, and medicated adult cohort in U.S. history. Because we like to numb that, that sense of pain. I mean, who wouldn't? The problem is that you cannot selectively numb emotions. You can't say, here's all the bad stuff, grief, shame, disappointment, anger, hurt. I don't want to feel any of that without numbing the emotions of joy, of gratitude, of happiness, of love, of creativity. And we end up numbing all of the good, and then we're miserable, and so... We're looking for purpose and meaning, and then we feel vulnerable, and then the cycle repeats itself. So we have to be willing to be vulnerable to break the cycle. And it's hard. It's, it's not an easy thing, but it's worth it. It's worth it. What she came away with saying is that essentially we have to believe we're enough. Instead of going, oh, I'm not good enough, I'm not wealthy enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not thin enough, we have to believe that we're enough. You have to tell yourself a different story about yourself, about your life. You have to begin to see things from God's perspective. You have to take a step back and go, I know I say this about myself, and maybe even other people say this about me, but what does God say about me? What is the truth that I can't seem to hear? You have to believe that you're enough. 
The only thing separating people who lived with horrifying repercussions of shame and disconnection, the only thing separating them from people who felt loved and belonging and like they were, the, they were successful in society and like they could make it in life, the only thing was believing that they were worthy of that. That's all. So we have to be willing to believe that we're enough. We have to start listening, start being kind to ourselves, kind to others, compassionate, truly compassionate, and open up our hearts to be intentional about relationships. And so it may seem like a very simple message, but around the holiday season this year, I just, my prayer would be that you can evaluate in your heart, in your life, you can look around and go, what are the relationships that I need to be investing more in? What are the friendships where I can lend a helping hand to somebody, where I can open up more, where I can strengthen? Maybe, maybe it is a matter of just sending a text to let somebody know that you're thinking about them. Maybe it's a matter of getting a cup of coffee or reaching out. But be more intentional about this and recognize that it's not only about your health, which is crucial and important, but it's about their health. And it's about their life and it's about their strength and it's about the commandment from Jesus or really the descriptor, that they will know we are Christians by our love. And not by the t-shirts we wear, not by what we protest, not by what we like, what we accept, what we don't, by our love. That was the one defining characteristic he gave us. So I just want to pray for you really quick that we can begin to utilize some of these tools to begin to strengthen our social core, our social relationship, and really this place A church family should be a community where we feel strengthened, where we feel loved, where we feel that that kind of deeper connection. So, Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for what you're doing in our lives. We thank you for this, this beautiful time around the holidays that can also be so difficult. And, Lord, I just ask that you would use this time in our lives to help us really focus in on what's most important, to help us begin to to push away other things that would cloud out our greater priorities, that we would begin to see building relationships, building friendships with those around us as, as something that's an essential in our lives, something that is a priority. Lord, that we begin to see it the way that you see it. And Lord, we need help from, for ourselves first. We need help knowing how to be compassionate to ourselves, how to see ourselves in a different light. Lord, how to get rid of shame and offense. Lord, how to push past uh, the, the busyness that we all get so involved in and make time for that which is most important. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength to do that. Give us the insight and the wisdom. Help us to see things from a different light. Help us to see things the way that you see them. Lord, to see ourselves, to see the people around us for the the incredible people that they are, the incredible um, sources of joy and, and strength and help that they are to us. Help us to be friends to those around us. And Lord, help us to value our friendships. I thank you for what you're doing in each of our hearts and lives. And Lord, I pray that this house would be a place of strong community. It would be a place of family. It would be a place where love abides and where people would know we are Christians by our love. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.